see you, and it's so good to be here. Now, if I've not met you before, I'm Mary, and back there, behind the Napotnik clan, is my family. There's Janelle, my wife, and Sloan, and Silas, and Shay, and Shelby. And one more, Spencer, and she's not well today, so she's home. But we're very glad to be here. We miss you guys, and uh, this is wonderful. So, this is the fifth sermon in a series of seven sermons that a whole bunch of churches in this area are doing. Seven sermons that are asking big questions about Christianity. And this week we're asking the question, is Christianity too narrow? Is it too narrow? And let's cut right to the heart of the matter. In our gospel reading, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's pretty narrow. And I think it's narrow in three ways in particular. First of all, all of the other major world religions, their founders said things like, I am a prophet who has come to show you the way to God. But of all the major religions of the world, of all the founders of those religions, only in Christianity do we have a founder of a religion saying, I am God, and I have come to find you. Second, Jesus is not only singling himself out as unique and narrowing his kind of confession of himself, He's also claiming that not only is he the way, the truth, and the life for Christians, he's also claiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life for everyone. So he's making a narrow view of himself and a narrow view of himself in relation to all of the cultures, all of the ethnic groups, all of the religions of the world. Third, if Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, then this puts Christianity in the very narrow position of being better than other religions. What I mean is, if Jesus is not just a prophet showing us the way to God, then Christianity has to be superior because it is a superior way of finding God. It's, it's a better way to find God if God comes looking than if you just have to go out into the vast cosmos and happen upon him. So yes, Christianity is narrow, very narrow. But that's not the question. The question is, is it too narrow? So, to honestly face that question... If you have your Bible, find our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 4. Thanks, Glenn, for reading to us. Good to see you, man. Thank you. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles Peter and John were causing quite a stir because they were making some big claims. The Jerusalem religious establishment was upset, not so much by what they were doing, but by the claims they were making. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. 
as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the apostles' message focuses in on Jesus and his resurrection. And this message gets them in trouble, and they're put on trial by the Sanhedrin, a sort of religious court for the Jews. And in this trial, the apostles are asked how they healed the man. Look halfway through verse 7. By what power, by what name did you do this? And Peter speaks up and says boldly, this is about halfway through verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Jesus is not just the message they're preaching, like we're told in verse 1. We see here in verse 10, he's also the unique power by which they're doing things. And then Peter doubles down on the name of Jesus in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now see that word salvation and saved? If you've read the Bible or been around Christians very long, this is a pretty big deal to us. We talk a lot about salvation, about being saved. But look how this is working in this passage. When Peter is talking about this lame man being saved, he's talking about health. He's saying that this lame man, his health was saved. Right? If if Jan was drowning in her pond and, and um, what is your name? Scott. <laughs> I kept thinking Stephen. Stephen. Who would be the first to save Jan? Scott. Okay. And Scott, <laughs> and Scott rescues Jan from drowning and somebody said, what just happened? And he says, I saved her. You wouldn't think he meant in some metaphorical life he forgave her sins. And you would think he meant he saved her life. Her health is saved. That's the way the word is being used here. His health has been saved. His health has been rescued. It's been restored. He's been made whole. But he starts from that level of meaning and he he kind of leaps up to make a bigger claim. Not just this guy's present health. He was lame. But he's also, he goes, when he gets in trouble about that, he says, oh, you need to get much madder than that. Like, I'm actually, there's a lot more going on than that. What else is going on? He uses the word salvation in that kind of save his health sense. And he makes it into this massive metaphor to say, actually, this is going on with every part of this guy's life. And not just for now, but for his whole future. Ultimate salvation. Ultimate saving health. So just like this man's physical cure has come uniquely through Jesus Christ. Peter, when he's put on trial, thinks, well, I'm in trouble. I might as well just go for it, right? And he says, not only did that happen, but all of us, our ultimate rescue, our ultimate saving health, our ultimate salvation also depends on Jesus Christ. And Peter and John emphasize the resurrection and the demonstrate as as this thing that demonstrated Jesus' uniqueness and his power to save us. So, so Peter and John, they say here, no one else has been raised from the dead like this, and there is no other name by which we must be saved. Now he's talking not to a group of lame people, so he's, he's using the man's salvation to talk about every part of your life. 
Now what's interesting is, do you notice how Peter is echoing what Jesus said about himself in the passage we started with? Remember, we started with John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And now here is Peter some years later, and he is echoing that. He's taking that in and he's saying that same kind of thing. He's saying Christianity is not just true for Christians. It's true for everyone. And that was just as much a bold claim in Peter's day as it is in our day today. For example, in the year 384 A.D., the Roman senator Symmachus gave a speech before Emperor Valentinian II. And here's what he said in, in the speech. It's a direct quote. It is the same thing that we all worship. We all think the same. We look up to the same stars. There is one sky above us, one world around us. What difference does it make with which kind of method... The individual sees the truth. We cannot all follow the same path to reach so great a mystery. He was talking to a room filled with different religions. And he said, different paths, all the same religion. Now, doesn't that sound very similar to the way our society thinks about religions? There's an ancient Buddhist parable where a king in northern India gathered five or six blind men in his courtyard. Then he had an elephant led out in front of all of them. They had never seen or heard anything about an elephant. And each blind man, they're kind of put in a circle around this and just said, okay, now touch this thing. They each touch a different part of the elephant. One felt its head, one felt its trunk, one felt its leg. And then the king asked each of them one by one, so what is an elephant? What is an elephant like? And according to what part they felt, they answered, right? The guy who grabbed the hold of the trunk said, oh, ele elephants are kind of like snakes. You know, they've got these long, they're long and flexible. And another guy said, I, I don't think so. Elephants are more like stumps of trees. Got a hold of the leg. So they're all arguing about what the elephant is. And, and, and this lines up with our own moral intuition about what, how to think about the different religions. All of the religions think they see the whole elephant. But they've all got their own angle on it. Nobody really knows anything but a little bit of the truth. So this was a, I mean, this goes way back, way, way back in Buddhism. But it, but we see it also in the 4th century in Rome. And this is kind of a gut view that we have in our world today. <coughs> now there's something really good about this way of looking at it. Because on one level, the truth is bigger than any one person can ever see or any one religion can ever really absolutely grasp. But the story is saying something more than that. And what's happening is that the story is hypocritical. You see, when you hold this view that Buddhism has an angle, Islam has an angle, Hinduism has an angle, Christianity has an angle. Native American religions have an angle. When you hold this view, it seems like you're being humble and gracious. But here's the problem. 
You're saying that everybody else is blind but you. That all of the religions are blind men except the king. And you're telling the story as if you are in the position of the king. As if you can see the whole. But none of the other cultures, none of the other ethnic groups, no other religion can. You're telling the story as if nobody gets it but the enlightened American. You are alone. And, and everybody else is blind. So the only way you can say that none of the world's religions really see the truth is if you assume you have the knowledge you refuse for them to have. You're acting as if you yourself have this very kind of superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality, but Buddhism can't have that. Christianity can't have that. Nobody can have that except the enlightened person who puts himself in the place of the king. To say that no one can know the truth is just as dogmatic as saying, we're Christians, we know the truth. Or we're Buddhist and we know the truth. Or we're Muslim and we know the truth. In other words, you're being dogmatic in your judgment of everybody else for being dogmatic. So yes, Christianity says it's superior, but at least it owns it. At least it admits it and doesn't hide it behind a cloak of superiority. Christianity is narrow. It is, and it always has been. But the question is, is it too narrow? Well, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. Let's see. How does this narrow view play out over time? And if you were to keep reading through the book of Acts, you would see this paradox developing. On the one hand, these Christians who have the chutzpah to stand up in this like multi-religious, pluralistic environment and say, we got the truth, the only truth, the only way. No man comes to the Father. So you've got this super narrow view and on the other hand, as you keep reading in the book of Acts, you see that these narrow-minded people, their lives are very generous. Their lifestyle opens up into the widest possible compassion and kindness and generosity. So you have this remarkable paradox of exclusive belief leading to an inclusive life. As you keep reading in the book of Acts, Christianity moves out and it's, it, it overflows Jerusalem and it moves from its Jewish center farther and farther into the Greco-Roman world of late antiquity. It spreads across all of these boundaries. In the book of Acts, Christianity develops this radical diversity. It, it develops cultural diversity ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, and this has continued right up into the present day. Just take the issue of ethnic and cultural diversity. One of the unique things about Christianity is that it is the only truly worldwide religion. Did you know that? 
Did you know that over 90% of Muslims live in one place? A band of, 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 of countries from Southeast Asia to the Middle East and North Africa. 90% of Islam. 95% of all Hindus are in India and the nearby areas. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. And then there's Christianity. 25% in Europe. 25% of Christians, of the Christians in the world live in Central and South America. 22% in Africa. 15% in Asia, about 12% in North America. It seems almost certain that Christianity exhibits more ethnic and cultural diversity than any other religion. Christianity is not a Western religion. It is the only truly worldwide religion religion. And I'm not just talking about where it's located. I'm also talking about what it looks like in those various places. For example, Lamin Sene, he's a Gambian scholar of history and world religions. He's been a professor in multiple countries. He's been a professor at the University of Ghana, He's been a professor at the University of Aberdeen, which is not in Africa, it's in Scotland. He's been a professor at Harvard and Yale, which is not in Scotland, it's in America. And he has argued that in Africa, Christianity has helped Africans to become African. Renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. This is an African scholar of history and world religion who's arguing that Christianity helps Africa become more African. <laughs> now, this is really quite interesting. Think about what we're saying. Think about what we just talked about. 2,000 years ago, the world of the Roman Empire believed everyone had their own God. That appears to be a very tolerant position. It appears to be a way of respecting all cultures and ethnicities and religions, and it, it appears to be a way of holding your position quite humbly. No one has the truth. Everyone has part of it. Everyone has their own God. And then right in the middle of that apparently tolerant view, Christianity comes along and says, no, there's only one God, and we know the one God. And it's not just the one God for us, it's the one God for everybody, and you need to know this one God. So the Roman world had what looked like a tolerant worldview, and the Christians had what looked like a very narrow worldview. But the way it played out, the way the Christians and the Romans lived was the exact opposite of what that looks like. For example, take the issue of sex. In the Roman world, the view of sex was based on honor and shame. It was based on the social order and hierarchy. So if you were a man of high social status, you could have sex with almost anyone you wanted to. Women could not. And no woman of lower social status 
could ever deny sex demanded by a man of a higher social order. She could not say no. It was illegal. Along comes Christianity and the Christians who have this super narrow, super intolerant position. How do they respond to that environment? The Christians say, no. All sex has to be consensual and covenantal. It has to be done by consent, mutual consent, and within a covenant. Christianity invented consensual sex. For Christians, women are not properties or baby makers. And men are not lust machines or power mongers. So in Rome, a few women, noble women, got their bodies protected. But most women had no way of protecting their body. In the kingdom of God, everybody, every body, every physical thing called a body is sacred. No matter where you are on the hierarchy, no matter where you are in the caste system, no matter what gender you are, all bodies must be honored. In Rome, bodies were for power or pleasure or the state or the market. In the kingdom of God, bodies are for the Lord. For Christian wives are not property, they are partners. And this kind of generosity, we can pick so many different subjects and show that, yes, on the one hand, Christianity is super narrow, but that is too simple of a question. The question is, what does it produce? What does it lead to? How does it lead people to treat their neighbors? Having this hyper-narrow view. For example, another example could be poverty, the poor. In the Roman world, the poor were despised. It was the Christian world where the poor were loved. In the Roman world, the races and the classes were kept separate. The Christian world brought them together. In a minute, it doesn't matter your gender, your class, your race, your literacy or not, your economic position or not. We're all going to eat at the same table from the same bread and the same cup of wine. They couldn't do that in the Roman world. Christians did that right in the middle of the Roman world and took all kinds of grief for it. They were mixing the races. They were mixing, mixing the classes. They were mixing genders. They were mixing everything up. They were saying everybody is sacred. Everybody has honor. And then when the plagues came in the second century and people were dying in the cities and the streets and the streets were littered with people <coughs> abandoned by their loved ones, it was the Christians who walked right across all of the barriers. And cared for those who were dying. So let's think about this. On the one hand, it looks like Christianity is the most narrow worldview there is. They were absolutely, supremely confident in the one way and that they knew it. And on the other hand, the Greco-Roman world said, we don't know who has the truth. Everybody's got their own. And so on that level, they look more tolerant. But the way it plays out, it actually flips. With the Christians, you have exclusivism at the center, and it leads to a wide tolerance, a wide generosity, a wide kindness and compassion. With the wider Greco-Roman world, you, you have this supposed tolerance at the center, but the way it plays out is in a crass intolerance. Now, why is that? 
Why does that kind of flip happen? Why is it that Christians absolutely are narrow-minded on the, on the one issue, but then on this other stuff, they get super broad-minded? Why is that? Here's the answer. Because the problem is not with narrowness. It's what are you narrowly holding? Right? The problem is that a narrow view of truth is not what we're really concerned about. What we're really concerned about is are you going to be nice to your neighbors? And, and it's not the issue of a narrow truth. The issue is it all depends on what truth you hold to so narrowly. For example, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? No. No. And if the Amish aren't narrow, <laughs> then there's no such thing. <laughs> Why will there never be an Amish, ter an Amish terrorist? Because when it comes to this particular issue, their narrowness is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. Jesus went to the cross to die for our salvation. Now, think about how that is telling us two things. On the one hand, it's telling us, you need to be saved. And on the other hand, it's telling us that we are so flawed, we are so broken, all of us are so guilty that nothing less than the Son of God can save us. So it's at the same time the highest and strongest expression of love for us as it is a statement of our brokenness. And here's the catch. If you take that into your heart, if you take deep into your heart, I am so lost. God has to die to save me. When you take that judgment, I'm that lost, and that love, there is a God that loves me enough to die for me. When you take that paradox into the center of your life, when you let that play out deep inside your heart, it does something to you. And you know this. So many of you know this. So many of you have taken this into your life. And it's, it's putting an axe to the tree of your prejudices. Because suddenly you're seeing that the person you're prejudiced against, you're no better than them. It produces the kind of life that we see the early church play. The most inclusive possible life there is. And it flows out of the narrowest view of truth there is. So what we have in Christianity is a non-oppressive absolute truth. That's the truth. The truth is that a God who became weak who loved and died for the people who opposed him. He forgave them. And that when you take that into the center of your heart, you will be at the heart of the solution our world needs. So let's go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter is talking about Jesus Christ. And he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Now, have you been saved? 
Have you taken the life of Jesus have you, into your very life? Have you turned in faith toward him? Have you given him your total allegiance, your love, and your absolute loyalty? Because if you do, then he'll bring into your heart the kind of love that can move out into this world and doing incredible things. If you haven't done that, if you haven't turned with your life and your love and your loyalty to Jesus Christ, if you're stuck, you're trying, but you're stuck, or if you haven't done that, please talk to Kevin or one of the other leaders of this church, and you guys need to begin to talk about what it will look like for you to get unstuck, for you to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us and to save us. Thank you for loving this world so much. In Jesus' name, amen.